You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Ray Boisvert from Canada. Uh, Ray has recently retired in the spring of 2012 as Assistant Director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, more commonly known as CSIS, an acronym you'll be hearing, I'm sure, repeatedly throughout this uh, interview. Uh, Ray spent about 30 years with CSIS, having joined it in 1984 when it was actually first created, has held a variety of senior and working level positions in the agency. Uh, before being Assistant Director for Intelligence, he was Director General of the Counterterrorist Program. Uh, he worked overseas doing intelligence liaison and uh, was involved in a variety of other responsibilities. And actually, before joining CSIS, he was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP. So there's a lot to talk about here, so let's just jump into it. Ray Boisvert, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Well, thanks, Mark. It's a real pleasure. It's a great institution. I'm happy to be able to make a uh, contribution of sorts. Well, that's that's very kind of you. Uh, Ray, CSIS is actually a relatively new organization. I think I mentioned it was founded in 1984. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, where it came from and, and why it was created before we get into specifically some of the things that you personally have been involved in? Sure. Uh, in fact, the, um, the service, as it's commonly referred to, um, um, is really uh, a function and uh, a result of uh, scandal of sorts and probably of the most uh, significant type, at least in terms of Canadian political context. Uh, being born on July 16, 1984 uh, was really a significant uh, watershed event for a number of reasons. One, it was the first time in Canada and one of the, uh, really the second big intelligence service that actually put uh, in writing, in, into law, the rules of engagement. In other words, it defined what a threat is or should be considered with respect to national security. It uh, divided up uh, what sorts of things the service should address and, as importantly, what it should not touch. And I'll explain a bit more about that in a second. So essentially, we uh, quite often refer to as a, as a period of great disruption. Um, and it was a period that led from uh, 
the first bit of political violence in Canada, commonly referred to as the October Crisis, and back in October 1970, uh, Quebec nationalist violence uh, hit a high pitch. Uh, there was the kidnapping of a British diplomat in Canada. There was the murder of a Quebec provincial cabinet minister. And essentially, the RCMP Security Service, which was the predecessor of CSIS, was the, um, the national investigative service. It was the security service, very much based on the British model, except that it also had law enforcement powers. So after the Royal Commission of Inquiry... If I can interrupt you, by law enforcement powers, you mean it had not only the authority to investigate and to collect intelligence, but to arrest people. Correct. And that became part of the problem. I think when the McDonald Commission, the Commission of Inquiry, looked into this over, over almost a five-year period, it, uh, it ended up uh, creating a very compelling indictment. And part of the problem was that those in the security service at the time were essentially judge, jury, and executioner. They themselves decided, based on a very loosely worded cabinet directive, referred to as cabinet directive number 35, which in those days was very, very, again, very loosely worded, very um, simple document that gave the security service its license to investigate in the realm of national security. But in that, they themselves decided what a threat was. So that included all those very dicey and opaque areas such as subversion. Uh, how do you define subversion, especially during the age of the Cold War? Is somebody really a communist subversive or are they simply just a progressive person who has very progressive ideas? So causing the security service considerable grief. There are a number of other things too. There are allegations uh, that proved to be true about spying on legitimate political parties. Um, and a number of other events that were seen as being uh, activities that were pursued in the interest of national security, but were, um, upon examination, seen to be outside the normal values and expectations of Canadians. So the Commission a separate agency be created, and one that had uh, was civilian in nature and had no police powers. So the government was the government of Pierre Trudeau, uh, who was the Prime Minister, in fact, was the last piece of legislation before that government fell. Um, and uh, was replaced by a conservative government for the next uh, three uh, party elections. And um, it was the foundation that up to that point in time, only in Australia had they been that um, uh, straightforward in setting out a legislative mandate for its security service. So we, uh, when I first joined, because I went, I was part of the last transfer up from the RCMP security service into the new organization. That's why I started on day one. But for those of us there at the time, we often quipped that it was an organization that was born out of scandal. It was an organization born into chains because of um, what had happened. And uh, it was a difficult struggle in those early years to move out of the shadow of its history and uh, out of the shadow of its past to become a you know, world-class security intelligence service uh, as parliamentarians had intended back in 84. So it's the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, not the Canadian Intelligence Service, you know, as such, what what is that distinction? What does security intelligence mean to you? Because I think that's a concept that doesn't, at least under that phraseology, at any rate, doesn't really exist here in the United States. No, and security intelligence is a is a type. It's a type of intelligence collection focused on securities, and of course, then that reflects really the fundamental activities of CSIS, which is to be a domestically focused security service, and that means defending against threats um, to various things. And as importantly, I think in that context, there is a distinction in legislation to foreign intelligence. CSIS is authorized to collect foreign intelligence, and it's defined as to what we mean by foreign intelligence, and I can get into that if um, later on, um, if that's of interest. 
but it's to be collected only within Canada. And that's a very interesting concept. I don't think that's replicated anywhere else. Uh, in other words, we can collect intelligence that's not threat-related in the way it's defined under legislation, but that is focused on things such as economic, diplomatic, uh, and security interests of other nation-states. But it has to be done only in Canada. So in other words, CSIS is not in the very classic James Bond mold or perhaps of uh, other aggressive predatory intelligence services sending out officers to recruit foreign diplomats or foreign officials in their home countries or in third countries. CSIS does not do that. That's something that Canadians at the time, and I think to this day, feel that that's unnecessary in terms of the pursuit of its national interests. So, well, let me ask then, if then, say, the Canadian Prime Minister is facing some uh, decision relating to foreign uh, or national security policy, uh, do we want to go to Afghanistan, send our forces to Afghanistan, or do we want to you know, return our forces from Afghanistan, that sort of question. Um, you know, Afghanistan is a long way from Canada. Is that something that CSIS would uh, provide intelligence and support of, or are they looking to other sources of intelligence uh, from other Canadian agencies or from information uh, given to them through liaison channels by the American intelligence services? Well, being a, rel a relatively small uh, service, it does rely on foreign relationships and partnerships. Absolutely, uh, CSIS leverages those uh, to a considerable um, success. But back to the first part, no, the service will, because of its mandate, and just to give you a quick snapshot, CSIS has a role that's broken down into three parts. It is to collect intelligence, analyze it, and give advice to government. And what's interesting out of that is that it's not to counter the threat. It, uh, that was removed given the scandalous uh, events of the past. Uh, Parliament decided that others will take whatever executive actions necessary to counter the threat. So in other words, if CSIS uncovered a foreign diplomat who was spying in Canada, CSIS would then inform the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Prime Minister's Office, the Privy Council Office, which is essentially the large central governing body for all of government and be able to provide that advice and give context, and it's up to them to make the decision as to what they will do. Remove that diplomat, in other words, declare him or her persona non grata, uh, or uh, take other actions. So with respect to the other parts of the mandate, though, um, Section 2 of the Act basically defines where the threat is. And the first part is it's broken down into four pieces. The first part is espionage. It's the counterintelligence mandate. The second part is foreign interference in foreign influence, and that one deserves some uh, deeper explanation perhaps later. Thirdly, and most importantly, and which currently takes up about 80% of the resources at CSIS, is the counter-terrorism mandate. And then fourthly, there was a piece of legislation, or a part of that legislation is no longer really active anymore, which was the counter-subversion piece. And that one's unique and distinct from foreign interference and foreign influence, and from the counterintelligence side. So back to the question, ultimately what we've seen happen at CSIS in the last 25 plus years is that it's moved from being a more parochial and more defensive security service to one that engages the threat wherever it may emerge. And in the post 9-11 environment, that meant sending officers to Afghanistan and to other parts, West Africa, East Africa and so on, to engage the threat directly. So with respect to Afghanistan, it means going out there and collecting intelligence in the field against the Taliban and against Al-Qaeda senior leadership. So uh, pursuant to that then, and I, I don't know, you perhaps can't say a whole lot about this, but I, as I understand, you spent something like three years as what your service calls a foreign collection officer 
posted in the Middle East, I guess, as your service's lead representative, um, working, among other things, on liaison relationships in, in the Middle East and, and Central Asia. So, it, 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 so that's sort of an extent. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say that's probably a good example. We used to call them security liaison officers because effectively that's, that was the bulk of their work was doing liaison. And that transformation occurred in the last, again, in the post 9 11 environment. We, the name change was reflective of the change of the role and that we operationalized those roles and they became foreign collection officers. The role was to be prepared to be trained and be able to run sources, recruit sources, but not again in the context of trying to perhaps recruit the Minister of Agriculture in a foreign country to get insights on what value Canadian wheat would be as a sort of a quick easy example but to go out there and collect intelligence against threats to national security is defined and being mostly focused on the counterterrorism requirements so that's a, that's a significant thing uh, while posted abroad and of course I can't disclose where that was CSIS only identifies three foreign places where they're operating in uh, plus the Afghanistan piece specifically but it's really London, Washington, and Paris. Those are the, the main centers of uh, hubs of, of activity for the service. But uh, the role out there is to still leverage those relationships nevertheless, because Canada, being again a small service, cannot undertake the massive uh, multidisciplinary operations that's required in typical environments. And the other challenge, of course, too, is if you're operating in a hostile environment or one where it's um, you can't um, you can't collect information the same way you'd collect it domestically at home, um, that single officer, that, that sort of sole uh, strong figure that we see in a James Bond type of character, uh, isn't really viable. You, uh, intelligence collection in this day and age is, um, involves a team and involves a number of specialists, and therefore CSIS and other medium-sized services rely on a lot of foreign partners to, uh, to be able to pursue its intelligence requirements. Most Five Eyes community, that's the American, British, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian relationship, but also in a number are with a number of emerging partners, and those include those in the, in the Central Asia and so on. Those are the areas where, if we're on the ground there, we'll reach out to them and say, can you assist us against this particular target or target set, and hopefully um, that'll occur through good liaison relationships. Now, uh, several years ago, there was um, a good bit of discussion in the literature about whether Canada needed to establish a quote-unquote foreign intelligence agency or foreign intelligence service, uh, presumably modeled more or less directly on either MI6 or CIA. Would you say then that uh, given this evolution in uh, the, the roles, if you will, of CSIS, that that's basically rendered that question moot, uh, that CSIS has not fully become a foreign intelligence service but has covered most of those concerns that the people who would have been arguing for a foreign intelligence service, uh, a separate foreign intelligence service, would have had? Absolutely. In fact, I would have been one of those arguing in favor of just a few years ago. But given my experience um, in the senior leadership ranks, especially where we've, we did a couple things that make it more viable, um, one is that we made intelligence the driver for the business activities. So, you know, the typical intelligence cycle, you plan, you collect, and you analyze, and then you distribute or disseminate intelligence to others. Uh, as the uh, collection point grew and our levels of sophistications at CSIS grew uh, in terms of capacity and capability to operate overseas, it became apparent that we needed to ensure that what we were doing as an organization was focused on intelligence requirements. 
And those are usually blended requirements. They involve the needs of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Department of Transport, uh, National Defense and others into the service's own collection needs with respect to the main things they needed to do effectively. Um, and uh, in pursuing those as a, as a combined piece, we ended up making sure that the service was intelligence-led as opposed to simply collecting intelligence uh, simply opportunistically. In other words, where opportunities arose, we would uh, pursue those and, and find information of value and then turn those into intelligence assessments or casework leads. So that's, that's the first part. The second part is that I think now upon reflection, I think a lot of the services uh, and the service leaders that I've spoken to over the years are actually quite envious of a service like CSIS because it can leverage its domestic base to conduct foreign collection operations. What I mean by that is uh, Canada, the United States, like Australia, the UK, uh, were countries that take in large numbers of immigrants every year. In Canada's case, it's about 1% of its population every year of uh, some new immigrants. So that's about 250 to 300,000 new people. And they represent every community from around the globe. So what the service does increasingly well is that it uses those community contacts, it uses its base of domestic security service intelligence collection platforms or its, its sources that they recruit within communities and move those offshore. And probably no better example would be uh, taking a source who's been recruited in Canada and moving them into East Africa, the East African theater of operations. Uh, it's seamless, it's much more elegant, uh, and it provides a, a great number of benefits. So now, if I can just interrupt for a moment here, just to be entirely clear on what you're saying, you're not talking about having CSIS hire these immigrants and they become CSIS officers who are then deployed overseas as U.S. government officials, or sorry, as Canadian government officials, albeit perhaps undercover. You're literally talking about recruiting them as sources. They're not employees, but they are people who are providing information to the service and then encouraging them to move overseas so they can get in a better position to, to provide the information that you need. Absolutely. That's the classic traditional trade crap of intelligence services that you have your core professional employees, the officers, the analysts, and so on. But all agencies recruit sources. They recruit persons who can facilitate access to information or actually go out there and pursue the information themselves. And sometimes they're even lead sources. Uh, sources will run their own little sub-network of access sources who will give them some insights uh, with respect to what's at issue. So uh, no, it's, they're definitely not employees of the service. Uh, they don't uh, they do not uh, receive any of the, uh, the, the sort of the, the training, the benefits, all those sort of elements, but they are provided the necessary wherewithals to go forward and collect information against perhaps not a, the same level of specificity that a collection officer would have, but they'd have a good sense of what sort of things they need to be alert to or what sort of uh, relationships or contacts do they need to pursue to be able, be able to help better inform uh, the intelligence gap and, and the intelligence-led approach to uh, collection overseas? Well, speaking of immigrants to Canada, then, uh, I saw a talk you gave on YouTube. And by the way, for, for the listeners, uh, Ray has, uh, has an extensive presence on YouTube, uh, has, has spoken publicly uh, quite a bit. So if you're interested by this uh, talk or this discussion today, you should, you should look him up there. Uh, but I saw you um, talking about how uh, foreign intelligence agencies, that is to say the intelligence agencies of countries other than Canada, outside Canada, uh, sometimes try to target and leverage your immigrant uh, communities in Canada. And that's something that the service is 
aware of and 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 has to keep an eye on. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? What what sorts? What is the concern ultimately? Ultimately, um, a lot of the uh, expat communities in Canada, the the wider diaspora of uh, any number of communities who now live or make Canada their home, quite often still have ties back home, whether it's extended family or whether it's business interests and so on. Um, a lot of there have been a number of foreign countries who have attempted to shape some of the opinions which are being uh, developed within their communities in Canada, perhaps trying to influence Canadian policy through uh, some of those same channels. But mostly, it's been one of two parts, and I think uh, the most uh, one of the more harmful parts has been efforts by foreign governments to either stifle any what they see as being threats to their regime uh, from a from a public policy perspective. In other words, um, if there are things that are written in local community newspapers in the local language, uh, if there are um, there are meetings or there are organizations that are formed that are whose activities are seen as being uh, inimical to the interests of the of the country back home, uh, they will do certain things to try to influence those, remove funding for a newspaper, threaten individuals either uh, very directly in the sense that well, if you want to get that visa to go visit your your very elderly parents. Uh, you better cooperate more directly, uh, not to spy, not to necessarily go out there and collect intelligence, but to either stop saying what you're saying about the government back home, or do provide us at least some sort of insights. Who else within your group is saying certain things that we don't believe that are, are, are true or accurate or are to the benefit of the home country? So those are things that we refer to as foreign influence. The other part, though, is that some governments will also try to influence um, opinion leaders in Canada, whether it's through those communities or often enough, uh, or which could take the shape in uh, trying to influence politicians who are uh, who are resident in Canada and uh, who would uh, perhaps could be like any sort of lobbying activity, be influenced to take a certain position that would be in the interest of that country. Now, are we talking about, when you say influencing Canadian politicians, I mean, what are we talking about here? I mean, to at least to cynical American ears, that sounds like um, bribery. Is that what we're talking about, or what's the phenomenon here? It's, I think it's more often than not devoid of any financial transactions, and it's not lobbying, because in Canada, as in, as in the United States, there are clear rules of how one can be lobbied, and how the lobbying industry or the government relations industry is managed. This is very subtle, it's opaque, it's under the radar, it's, um, it's conducted in a way that individuals uh, representing a foreign country, whether they're a true intelligence officer or representing the interests of the probably the intelligence community in that country, will attempt to communicate uh, various policy initiatives or try to stymie some that would be, again, against the interests of that country. So they'll do it very subtly, but it's done in a way that's clandestine and inappropriate. It's not illegal, and this is part of the, the problem that most people have a, a hard time getting their mind around it. This is not an activity that would be listed in the Criminal Code of Canada, uh, but it's seen as being an affront to democratic values and to public discourse by undermining the openness of public discourse. So as a result, it's seen as a threat to national security, and it's one that's uniquely given to CSIS to investigate. But it is difficult to identify because usually it involves conversation of two people, three people, perhaps four, none of whom would like to see that exposed, even if they weren't agreeing to participate. The mere, mere fact that they've been approached and somebody's has tried to influence their thinking on a certain policy or a position, uh, that would be uh, 
quite uh, detrimental to their own personal interests. So as a result, we don't get a lot of cases that see the light of day. Now, if I recall correctly, the Director General of CSIS uh, spoke publicly about this issue, gosh, I don't know, uh, some months ago now, I guess. And I think there was a bit of an uproar in Canada that, uh, and it may have been uh, sort of uh, uh, discussed in the in the Canadian uh, media, perhaps, that this was an inappropriate thing for him to say and that he was stepping beyond the bounds and that, that really that, that legal interactions of politicians um, with with others was should should be none of CSIS's business. And that's um, it, quite true. And it was about actually it goes back um, like, uh, several months ago. And it was a case where it, he felt compelled. I would have to assume to make the point. And I think because it is a very subtle threat and one that most Canadians were not really aware of, and that perhaps others weren't paying attention to. It was probably controversial for the reasons you mentioned, uh, and this is part of the, the challenge of uncovering that type of activity. A uh, number of politicians will engage with foreign representatives for very legitimate reasons. It's part and parcel of their everyday business, whether it's attracting a new investment or it's involving um, issues of state. Uh, they will engage foreign diplomats. But when it moves from that normalcy where there are things being discussed or part of an agreed-to plan on behalf of the Canadian government, and it moves into the shadows where two people start discussing things that begin to benefit strictly the other government, that becomes somewhat problematic. And I think that the problem with CSIS's um, concern at the time is that there were a growing number of these sort of activities that were hitting the radar of the agency, and that it was difficult to, um, to get some traction in trying to alert others about the problem. So I think as a result, it did kind of affect Canadians because it was uh, we're very being a very open society, very accepting, very multicultural. It was almost a, a feeling that somebody was casting aspersions against um, a number of groups, but wasn't able to demonstrate the evidence. Since that time, there's been a number of issues that have arose, and I think um, what he said, I think he's been totally vindicated um, publicly, and I think there are very few voices out there that challenge or question what he said or why he said it. Well, since we're talking about things that might be politically controversial in Canada, I'll ask you something I'm curious about. A moment ago, we were discussing uh, the, the immigrant community in Canada uh, and both how CSIS is able to work with them to collect information that it needs and also how uh, CSIS is concerned that sometimes the immigrant community is on the, the receiving end, perhaps, of, of, of influence or unpleasant attention from services overseas. In the United States, at least, it's a very uh, politically touchy sort of topic when the FBI or intelligence or law enforcement agencies uh, interact with minority communities. Um, obviously, the one that's most in the news is the is the Muslim community, and it just it just the the very notion of the FBI, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, watching or having you know any interest at all in what American Muslims are, are doing is is um, causes great concern. And people get very upset. Uh, do you have similar sorts of sensitivities in, 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 in Canada that, gosh, the, there's something just fundamentally wrong or un-Canadian, if you will, or about, uh, about CSIS concerning itself with the affairs of people who are in Canada legally who are either you know, citizens or perhaps on the way to being citizens? That's a great question, and it's a very complex issue. It deserves a, probably a couple of minutes here to try to explain why I believe the activities of um, of agencies like CSIS or the FBI are absolutely necessary and um, and how it can be done effectively where uh, I think you can do it in a way that, that becomes very transparent 
and that uh, through dialogue and outreach, you can you can probably achieve some sort of level of discourse that would not be offensive and would ensure that uh, there's there are good positive outcomes all around. And here's what I mean: at the end of the day, CSIS has a very special mandate. It has a lower threshold of investigation than law enforcement. In Canada, the rules for engagement of, of the police is reasonable and probable grounds. And that's part of the sort of British tradition that most uh, English-speaking jurisdictions, uh, likely in all jurisdictions in the United States, it's the same thing. CSIS, the mandate, allows it to investigate um, with reason to suspect. So it's a, quite a lower threshold than law enforcement. So if there's reason to suspect that somebody's engaged in threats to national security, CSIS can go out there and begin some inquiries. There are a number of uh, ministerial directives that help shape that mandate, and it helps to try to provide that delicate balance in a democratic society. In fact, a good example would be that the investigative methods need to be proportionate to the level of the threat. In other words, if you're at the beginning of an investigation or there's no great indication of a serious threat, you cannot go out there and acquire a warrant and use um, surreptitious methods of intercepting personal information. You can only go out there and talk to people, and knock on some doors, and perhaps take it up a step later and, and recruit a source or perhaps ask questions about an existing source about somebody or something. So what's happened over a number of years is that um, because of the focus on the counterterrorism program across the West since 9-11, there's been a, a tremendous amount of interaction between um, intelligence officers and the public. And of course, members of certain communities have felt particularly um, that they've... Um, They've been subjected to a, a disproportionate amount of, uh, of interest, and I and I get that, and I certainly empathize. But the service's role is to be the early warning system. It's to be uh, the voice of reason, to provide rational, objective information to government, so that, as importantly, not only should there's a need to be able to react effectively and perhaps prevent another 9/11 moment. But it's also to ensure that governments do not overreact. I mean, think about internment uh, in this, in this during the period of the Second World War as an example of how governments can overreact to a threat that I think most historians would agree with, or is almost non-existent, or was really very, very minimal. So, CSIS and other agencies like the FBI and others will be able to go out there and give that kind of effective, objective information to government is to go out there and talk to people. So. Myself, I've spoken to a number of community leaders. Uh, CSIS does a great outreach program. It uh, goes to town halls and has discussions with a number of uh, communities um, around the, the major urban centers in Canada. And really, message is that uh, we're not—we can't stop knocking on doors and talking to people. We do so very openly. We identify ourselves. We tell people who we are. Uh, so I think that's far better than secretly, surreptitiously ferreting out information. In other words, spying on people. So it's a uh, it's not going to make everybody happy, there's no doubt, but I think it's the only effective way in this modern age to go out there and ensure that governments have enough information to be able to make the right decisions at the right time. You mentioned uh, terrorism a couple of times, and for about 18 months you were head of counterterrorism for CSIS. Can you talk to us a little bit about what sorts of terrorist threats Canada faces? Uh, we think of Canada, and, and I think Canadians by and large think of Canada as well, as showing a very benign face to the world, and presumably that comes, that uh, results in not creating very enemy, very many enemies. So can you talk a little bit about the, the terrorism threat as it, as it looks from, from the Canadian side of the border? 
Well, there's no doubt that uh, most of us suffer from a, a little bit of uh, hubris and um, we see ourselves as the Sweden of uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but having said that, uh, there are a number of true and very deep threats facing Canada. A lot of them involve uh, political or religiously motivated violence. Uh, it stems mostly from uh, drivers or external actors, so it is still that threat of um, Al-Qaeda, it is the threat of um, the Taliban, it's the threat of uh, various uh, East African interests or West African uh, terrorist organizations that are linked to a Sunni Islamic extremism. So it is the Al-Shabaab question. Um, it is also a number of uh, other sort of lesser threats, but are, are important, and they represent everything from right uh, to left-wing extremism. Um, there is also a number of proliferation threats. In other words, people trying to acquire technologies in Canada to use those for uh, dual purposes other than, uh, for example, what they're initially intended to be, which may be for peaceful or scientific research and so on. So I think being a technological leader in the world, uh, Canada's biotechnologies, aerospace industries, um, resource extraction uh, industries are, are top best of breed. And I think as a result, they garner a lot of attention and a lot of that involves um, trying to acquire those technologies. Some of it is just in pure spine sense. Some of it is, again, it's for proliferation concerns. But it's also a question mostly, though, it's about public safety. And um, Canada, as I said at the outset, is a country made up of uh, probably the most diverse set of cultures and um, of peoples from around the world. Uh, it's probably one of the most um, interesting open societies that allows people to pursue their interests and to be able to advocate a number of things. And sometimes that advocacy borders on violence or at least the um, advocating the use of violence to achieve a political or religious uh, objective. So those little things do emerge on the radar and they're certainly important and ultimately uh, the greatest challenge to any government in the 21st century and in terms of providing the greatest freedom is the freedom of, um, of safety and security, to be safe uh, from terrorist threats and ones that undermine the very fun the foundations of democracy. So there are threats and Canadians do feel fairly comfortable and they have good reason to. We're very, very lucky, very fortunate to have uh, such a large landmass uh, isolated from most of the worst neighborhoods in the world and being next to uh, arguably the best neighbor any country can ask for. But at the end of the day, um, we're focused, uh, we're, we are the, the focus of a lot of terrorist entities. Al-Qaeda has identified Canada several times publicly as a top five target. And we are the only G8 country uh, that has not suffered some sort of significant event. Um, so I think it's a question of time. And I think our NATO profile, NORAD profile and so on really keeps on contributing to that as well as the Afghan mission and things we've done in Libya and other places. Uh, we've certainly had a very public profile. I heard you speak publicly uh, again uh, in a video um, about a case in 2011 where two Canadians were trying to go uh, abroad to uh, carry on violent jihad. Um, and at the same time, you mentioned that your service was trying to get intelligence about them because they were terrorists or at least operating in the terrorist world. But at the same time, CSIS was trying to protect them. Uh, I, I imagine you can't go into specifics, but do you want to talk a, just for a moment about that fundamental dilemma about what's going on here? It was a very odd notion, it seemed to me. Well, it's one of those things where, um, again, the United States, Canada, Australia, UK, others have a number of its own citizens that if they become highly radicalized and decide that they want to pursue their radicalized beliefs outside of the country because they may find it too difficult to operate within, and they find it perhaps it's the best calling is to move 
on to Somalia to engage in violent jihad. Um, and uh, they'll do so traveling on a national passport. If a Canadian passport holder went overseas and blew themselves up and killed a number of people, well, um, shame on us, in the sense, in the deepest of shame, uh, where we, can allow, we cannot allow that to happen. So there's a, um, there's a level of responsibility to help prevent those events from happening. It's not just a matter of, well, hopefully they'll leave the country and go do something bad somewhere else. That's never been the doctrine of an organization like CSIS, and neither is it with respect to any number of uh, well-minded Western-based security services. So um, you do that, but you do so at some peril, because ultimately um, people move into jurisdictions where there is not the same respect for the rule of law or the respect for human rights. So you can't just quickly and cavalierly run off and go alert a foreign intelligence service or a police organization that a Canadian is moving into their jurisdiction and that we believe, we have reason to suspect, something bad. And that they go out there and they arrest that person and then subject that person perhaps to less than stellar treatment and uh, would be part of their human rights or worse, put, their, their, put them in physical danger. Uh, that's not on either in terms of responsibility and duty to protect. So it's a delicate balance. Uh, you try to pursue these individuals. You try to track them globally as they move. Uh, you hopefully try to prevent them from leaving the country. But if you if you can't miss that window of opportunity, then it's a question of trying to prevent them from doing harm to others, but not positioning them or putting them in, in potential harm's way by another security or police service who may not have the same respect for human rights. As a practical matter, what leverage do you have over a foreign intelligence service in, in the Middle East or in Africa or wherever to, to keep them from torturing or mistreating anybody? Well, you uh, first of all, you try to establish relationships uh, beforehand. That was a big part of the work I did when I was overseas. Um, and part of that was setting down some baseline rules. First and foremost was respect for human rights and uh, complete prohibition on torture. Any information derived from torture would be um, would be uh, placed in a quarantine and set aside and not treated um, in the way that if intelligence was provided in any other, through any other methods, we would accept it immediately and take a look at it and find some way to uh, blend it into our intelligence assessments. Any information that's tainted has to be, uh, has to be isolated and, and completely discouraged. So you go out there in advance and you go and engage in a number of uh, established engagement. Your officers overseas have to constantly go back to those themes and remind other practitioners that there are certain standards because at the end of the day, those who understand the business intelligence know that information derived by torture through torture is completely, almost completely unreliable. And I say almost, there may be kernel truth in there, but to try to, to um, boil that down and to break it down and try to find if there's anything in there that's reliable isn't worth the effort and, and it's such an affront to uh, everybody's basic values. Nobody wants to go there in the first place. So I encourage them to do the right things for a lot of positive reasons. You'll keep your flows of intelligence moving in their direction and sometimes there are, there are other carrots. Perhaps there's some training opportunities or some ways to leverage a relationship that they would want to pursue in their interest. So you do try to shape the receiving end and to make them understand that you will, you will not trade in information derived from torture. Ray, I've kept you longer than I meant to, uh, and I apologize for that, but maybe two last quick questions going slightly in a different direction. And, and that is for young Canadians who might be interested in a career in intelligence. Uh, first off, 
how do people join CSIS? How do people become CSIS officers? And secondly, what sort of people is the service looking for? What, what, what skills, what uh, uh, background, what education perhaps do uh, young Canadians looking to become intelligence officers today in 2012 or 2013 uh, need to have? Well, first off, the web is the best portal. Um, service uh, has a great recruiting. Uh, there's actually a microsite um, called uh, Intelligence Matters. There are also a number of great videos that the service produced in the last year. They're on YouTube, and if you search for them, I think it's just simply referred to as CSIS recruitment videos. I think there's a half a dozen of them. They're very uh, slick. They're well uh, put together. They're interesting. They're, uh, I think they're intended to be in cinemas and a few places. So they're, they're high production value, so worth a look. Otherwise, the, um, the application process is certainly clear on the website and the microsite. Uh, with respect to skill sets, it's an evolving thing. Traditionally, it's been about trying to find individuals that had a great generalist background. Typically, people join the service in the last number of years that I've been there. They quite often have a graduate degree or they've had uh, an undergrad degree with some good experience. They've traveled, they've worked overseas, and, and I'm not talking about a, a, a weekly holiday in Florida or Cuba. And I guess in the Canadian context, that would be Cuba or anywhere else. Um, and it's um, it's as much about having an ability to engage with others, to successfully gain the confidence of the people you talk to. So to have people who are um, who have that skill and combining that with some world experience and perhaps another language, another deep cultural experience, and also to demonstrate the ability to do analysis to be able to see things, to be able to cogitate them, to be able to create a cogent, useful piece of intelligence are, are very important because um, the service still recruits people for both roles, the analyst role and the collector's role out of the same individuals. They'll sometimes try to stream people towards their strengths, but they do try to go for people who can do both very well and not easy. The last part is that there is that evolving piece and increasingly people who are techno-savvy will also stand out above the crowd. So I think having a really good understanding of technology, blending that with the, uh, the general arts and the social sciences would be a very powerful set of tools that you can bring forward in an application. And again, uh, having a great sense of the world uh, through direct experience, working overseas for a period of time or working through some sort of international organization and so on would put you in very good stead. Well, Ray Boisvert, I, I really appreciate you spending this time with us. I, I, I apologize again for, for running on so long, but I think it was a great conversation. I really appreciate your perspectives, and thank you so much for appearing with us at the International Spy Museum. Well, it's been a pleasure, Mark. Again, great institution. I'm glad to take an interest. I think the Canadian security intelligence experience is a unique one. I think it's a very interesting one, and one that doesn't usually get a lot of exposure. I guess in some ways it's quintessentially Canadian. Well, uh, thank you for, for helping us expose those perspectives, uh, and I think people will enjoy this. Thanks again. You're very welcome. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.